turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy 2. In the church of Jesus Christ, any attempt to countermand or contradict or explain away the decree of God for all things, the design of God, the, the purposes of God, this always, every time, leads to spiritual disaster. For example, many centuries ago, the slow transfer of authority away from Scripture alone and toward the church itself as an authoritative hierarchy eventually led to the spiritual disaster known as the Roman Catholic religion. In the early centuries after the apostles, a man named Pelagius taught that human beings are not tainted by sin to the degree of total depravity and that we possess the capacity to choose of our own free will to be redeemed. That's led to the disaster we still deal with today of Arminianism and free will theology, which now places mankind as sovereign over God. When the miraculous sign gifts of tongues and prophecy and miracles of the first century of the church, which have ceased, we don't need them because we have the word of God, but those were suddenly redefined in the early 20th century as somehow a necessary manifestation of the presence of the Holy Spirit and even of salvation itself. At that point, this led to hundreds of millions of people being led away from the biblical gospel and to a false gospel which trusts only in falsified outward manifestations. Spiritual disaster. And when radical feminism began to mix some reasonably good ideas with a lot of terrible ideas, the truth was that radical feminism had a very clear agenda, which I've spoken of and written on extensively in the past, and that agenda wasn't to represent women. The true agenda of radical feminism was to destroy the God-given structures of both the family and the church. That was the agenda, and this is documented. And that for a woman to now rid herself of husband and children was somehow freeing herself from oppression. And sadly, the church began to buy into a hermeneutic of the culture to look at reinterpreting the scriptures to better fit so-called experts of our culture. Now, it began in liberal circles with mainline denominations, and that makes sense to us. They'd already punted the Bible and the biblical gospel anyway, so we would expect them to fall in line with cultural expectations very easily because at this point, mainline denominations are led primarily by unbelievers. So we would expect that. But now in recent years, the attack on what Scripture says about the God-given roles of men and women, of husbands and wives, this has come under attack even from conservative voices. And now, men we might once have held in high esteem and respected are waffling, and they're making allowances for extra-biblical actions in the name of not hurting feelings. And so what do we do with this? How do we deal with the ever-changing climate even within the walls of the churches that some used to be faithful. What do we do with that? Well, we do what we've always done. We simply preach the word. We let the word of God speak for itself. We proclaim what is true and we offer that what Christ said is still true. That if you love him, you obey his commands. If you reject his commands, then you're proving that you don't love him. It's really that simple. Fortunately for me as a pastor, it's not my responsibility 
to check the prevailing winds and to see what people want to hear. We can't do that. In fact, Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, verse 3, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. In other words, teach from the pulpit what makes me happy. That makes no sense. That's not teaching. And so my responsibility as a pastor is fulfilled simply by reading the text of the Bible, explaining it to you, and urging you in the strongest possible terms to obey it. That's it. And really, this whole issue boils down to one simple question to ask yourselves. Do I find peace in the order that God has created, or must I determine a new order that improves upon what God has already decreed? Do I find peace in what God has already created as his order of things, or must I determine a new order which improves upon what God has already decreed? What do we call it when we try to improve upon something that God has already decreed? That is called idolatry, that I worship something that God has not made. And so in our continuing series on the godly women of the church, now we come to another verse which really isn't complicated. It doesn't have layers of mystery to it. It doesn't have a secret hidden meaning which makes it really mean the opposite of what it seems. It's so simple a child may understand it and yet it has been relentlessly debated. Entire books written on one verse, 1 Timothy 2, verse 12. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man Rather, she is to remain quiet. Now, remember that we're in the context of the local church gathering. That's what we're talking about here in 1 Timothy 2. We've really kind of covered a lot of this in past messages. So let me just give you two reminders. First of all, first of all, this is not cultural to Ephesus or even to the first century. This is universal. How do we know this? 1 Corinthians 14, beginning in verse 33, For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything that they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. And the second fact, and we, we talked about this last time, this admonition to silence is in the context of the preached word of God. That's the context that to argue or to debate or to ask questions when the word is being presented, that's shameful. Last time we learned that the true delight of the quiet heart, really not just of the women of the church, but of the men as well, is to have a heart of, of learning, of growing and gaining knowledge of our Savior. Of taking that heart attitude of quietness and humility to learn the scriptures as they're taught. And really, verse 12 here is not complicated. It's made complicated by those who don't want to believe it. It's made complicated certainly by those who don't want to obey it. But it's not complicated. Paul is brief. It's succinct and to the point. Sometimes things in Scripture are so obvious that we think, well, there must be a hidden meaning. No hidden meaning here at all. There's basically two important facts or guidelines which Paul gives about the functioning of the local church in this verse. The first one is women are not to teach men in a public forum. Women are not to teach men in a public forum. More on that later. And I've been asked this question, but why? The best answer is, I don't know. That's what God says. Now, he's going to give a, an answer from the created order. We'll deal with that next week. 
but but it it doesn't have anything to do with capability doesn't have anything to do with with uh, intelligence doesn't have anything to do with some faulty assumption that that somehow men know more than women do to be quite honest with you some of you ladies have a lot more time to study the word of god than us guys do and there are some women in this church that are absolutely proficient in the word and we we love that and the second fact again not complicated and it follows logically after the first fact The second fact is women are not to have spiritual authority over men in the local church. Women are not to have spiritual authority over men in the local church. There's never a time for a woman to be preaching to men or being responsible to shepherd men as a group. Now, this isn't speaking of functional mundane tasks, which are part of the day-to-day functioning of the church. If some of you men are helping set up some tables for one of our events and, and you ask the lady who's in charge, where would you like this table? She's not exercising spiritual authority by saying, over there. You, you don't have to say, hey, hang on a minute. I'm the man here. I'm going to decide this. No, that's not spiritual authority. I think more important here is that issue of the shepherding. Can I just put it in this very simple term? A woman pastor is an oxymoron. To put it very simply, you can either be a woman or you can be a pastor. You cannot be both. And somebody might say, but I know a woman pastor. No, you don't. You know a woman who is masquerading as something that God has never ordained her to be, ever. Any woman occupying the pulpit, preaching and exercising spiritual authority over men is in utter, total rebellion against God. Oh, but she's such a good preacher. That doesn't matter. Oh, but she's so kind. Well, of course she is. She's a woman. Oh, but she's so gentle. Doesn't matter, doesn't matter, doesn't matter, doesn't matter. God said it is to be men. These facts are not hard to discern from the text. I have read more articles doing hermeneutics. It's like the the word version of gymnastics to try to get around this. You can't get around it. We'll see this confirmed with even more clarity in chapter 3, one of the qualifications of a leader in the church, one with spiritual authority. Chapter 3, verse 2, he's a husband of one wife, literally in Greek, a one-woman man. I don't know how else to get around that. And you would think that if the intent of Christ was for the church to have spiritual leaders over men who are women, he would have said so. Maybe he would have had six male apostles and six female apostles. Wouldn't that have been a great time to establish that? Maybe the Levitical priesthood in the Old Testament would have included women, but that's not the case. And again, the question is so very simple. It's very simple. Do I find peace in the order that God created or must I determine a new order that improves upon what God has decreed? And listen, it's not just women who struggle with God's created order in the church. When men are called to set a standard of faith for their family, to lead other men, to know their Bibles and to be disciples and be disciple makers, this is not something, frankly, that most men jump at. When I say to a group of men, how many of you want to lead God's people? Boy, there's all kinds of looking around and, oh, gee, look at the time. And because if women sinfully want to lead when they should not, men often sinfully want to follow when they should not. If a woman is not to teach men or to have spiritual authority over men, then what is a woman to do in the church? 
This is not meant by the Apostle Paul to be some sort of oppression. It is not meant to be punitive whatsoever. Our subject for today is that what women are to do is to provide godly support. Godly support. I have looked forward to this verse because it's so very straightforward. It's not meant to be taken independently from the rest of Scripture. As a matter of fact, in the New Testament alone, we have tremendous examples of godly women who were important enough to be included in the inspired text of the Bible And they're examples of what women who provide godly support do. I I could preach a whole series just on these women, and I was tempted to do it, but we do want to get through 1 Timothy before Christ returns, if we can. Then I was going to preach on six, and I narrowed it down to three, and I narrowed it down to one. And I, I confess, I just picked my favorite. I want to bring our attention to one who is particularly inspiring in terms of her godly support of the church, and that is, of course, Priscilla. I'd like to have you turn to Acts chapter 18 and we're going to look at Priscilla because she teaches us what 1 Timothy 2.12 really means. Acts chapter 18, Priscilla was arguably the most famous woman in the early church. Her given name is Prisca. That's her, her full name, but she was commonly known by her nickname, the diminutive version, Priscilla. That's a, like putting an I-E on the end of a name in English to kind of make it smaller. Prisca is her, full, is her given name, but we know her as Priscilla most of the time. There's no record of her having children. We don't know if she had children or if they were grown. We're not told that. Her husband's business apparently afforded them the ability to have a home large enough to hold many people. They were able to travel widely and to immediately even set up with a large home wherever they went. She always appears in Scripture with her husband, Aquila. But we won't worry about him right now. Aquila is the Latin name that means eagle, but we'll let him fly away because we're going to focus on Priscilla. She's mentioned six times in the New Testament, four times before her husband, by the way. If I ask you, if you know your Bible, who is the most famous couple in the New Testament, you'll probably say not Aquila and Priscilla. You'll probably say Priscilla and Aquila. Why is that? Because probably she is a noble woman who married a laborer. And that in the hierarchy of Roman society, she was actually ranked higher than he did. And so you just naturally named her first. I'd like to show you five qualities that Priscilla had that made her a valuable support in the church of Jesus Christ. Valuable support. The first quality that Priscilla had, she was eternally minded. She was eternally minded. Priscilla and Aquila were... Tent makers in Rome, either both of them or at least Aquila were Jewish and both had come to saving faith in Christ in Rome. Priscilla and Aquila left Rome in 49 AD because Emperor Claudius had expelled Jews from Rome. Now you have to understand the Jews were lumped together with Christians. Claudius didn't know the difference. The historian Suetonius records that the emperor, quote, banished from Rome all the Jews who were continually making disturbances at the instigation of one Crestus. Who do you think Crestus is? It's sort of a, it's sort of a permutation of Christ. And all Claudius knew is that the Jews, some of whom were Christians, were just causing all kinds of problems, apparently. And so Priscilla and Aquila left Rome. They went to Corinth. And this is where we first meet them and where the Apostle Paul first meets them. Acts chapter 18, verse 1. 
After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontius, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. Paul arrived in Corinth in AD 51 on his second missionary journey, about two years after Priscilla had arrived there. And it may be that they met because Paul was seeking a job to supplement his income very early in his ministry. He found a local tent maker, really more broadly a leather worker, anybody who does anything with leather. And he found that they had Christ in common as well. Now, some have said that Paul led Priscilla and Aquila to faith, but that seems pretty unlikely because just a few verses later, they're already portrayed as very mature in Christ. Paul stayed for 18 months in the city of Corinth, ministering the gospel in this fertile territory because it was dominated by paganism, by mysticism. If I put it this way, Corinth was the California of the time. It was a mission field. And, and look how Priscilla cared for the gospel, for the things which are eternal. Now, ladies, you know this. I don't have to tell you this. Your home is a, is a private place. It is your safe place. It's a, it's a place where you can enjoy your husband and your family But Priscilla valued the eternal enough to see the opportunity to give the Apostle Paul a home base of operations. There's an old saying that says that fish and company both go bad after three days. Priscilla had Paul in her home for 18 months. And not only that, since there wasn't a church in Corinth that could support Paul, he was invited to share in their business as well. To be given the opportunity to work alongside them and share in their income. Why is this? Verse 4. And he, that is Paul, reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. He's there doing the work of the ministry, plowing very hard ground with the gospel. And so Priscilla basically is offered, you may share my home and you may share my husband's income for the sake of the eternal By now, they would have established a fairly deep business. Takes time to build clientele, to gain a reputation. And by the time Paul concluded his ministry in Corinth, Priscilla had settled in at Corinth for about four years. This is enough time to put down roots, to get to know your neighbors, to fellowship with the growing church. But in AD 53, Paul left Corinth for Ephesus. And guess who left her home behind to come with him? Acts chapter 18, verse 18. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria and with him, Priscilla and Aquila. She valued the eternal more than her own security, more than her own home. She'd already had to uproot four years earlier. And so this wasn't a new scenario for her. She followed her husband. She went where the spiritual action was with the apostle Paul. I think this is a great time to ask a question of all of us. Do you view your life as very simply a tool in the hands of the Savior to be used for His glory and for His church? Because that's what she did. Priscilla cared more for Christ, cared more for the church than she did for her own comfort, for her own dreams. She followed her husband in this unknown ministry opportunity. We don't see her saying if she had kids, oh, but our kids have such a good school. Oh, but we got such a great price on our house. Oh, but we love our neighbors and they're great people and No, she just went where the opportunity was. That's possible to do the opposite, isn't it? To leave where the opportunity is. I hear this all the time. 
We see this on the news. We even say it amongst ourselves. I'm ready to leave California, right? I know that living in California has its drawbacks and it may even feel good to talk about leaving to go somewhere else. Let's get out of California because it's too liberal. Or I want a better place to raise my family. And we understand that. But Priscilla didn't think that way. Their moves were for the sake of the gospel only. Can I put it this way? She would have moved to California because this is where the mission field is. Could I offer a little bit of counsel based on years of observing the Church of Jesus Christ? A little side note here. Trying to find a specific location which will make you happy will never work. Let me tell you why. It's going in the opposite direction to being eternally minded, isn't it? It's trying to find happiness on this earth. It's an absolute lie because no matter where you go, guess what you'll find there? Sinners. Every single time. And the only safe place to raise your family on planet Earth is in your home. That's the only safe place. Your singular goal is to raise children that follow Christ, not to raise kids who went to the best schools or lived in the nicest neighborhoods or had the nicest weather or the best view. That's not the goal. And when that place stops making you happy at a surface shallow level, guess what your inclination will be? It will be to leave. And I've seen this happen more than once Somebody's in one place for 20 years. I don't want to be there. I want to be happy. So I'm going to go someplace else. They're there for five years. They're unhappy. They're in the next place for three, two, one. And then you end up moving every year. It is an absolute lie. Can I tell you the one place on planet earth that will make you happy? It is fellowshipping with the church of Jesus Christ wherever they are. That's it. I've seen this more times than I care to remember and it smacks of being worldly and shallow. I have never seen it work out one time except to see a family degrade into selfishness and absolute self-focus. What is California? It's a mission field. It is ripe. People right here in our own town dying without Christ every single day. For me personally, Sylvia didn't say to me, Hey, let's go to Bakersfield for the clean air and the mild weather and the cultural opportunities. (laughs) You know, when Sylvia agreed to come to Bakersfield with me before she'd ever been here once, because she knows it's very simple. You follow your husband and you follow Christ. It's that simple. And as we're outside choking to breathe, we just thank God that this is where, where he put us. But there are people here choking on their own sin and they need to know christ not only was priscilla eternally minded there's a second quality she had she was ministry driven she was ministry driven so paul priscilla and aquila now arrive in ephesus again fertile ground for the for for the gospel Hey, going from Corinth to Ephesus is kind of like going from L.A. to San Francisco. I mean, you're going from, from the frying pan into the fire. And so Paul would stay briefly after reasoning with the Jews in the synagogue, proclaiming the gospel. But he left very soon after his arrival with the hope of returning. Paul would return in Acts 19, but for now he's leaving. But he didn't want his influence to be completely erased or his work completely in vain. So guess who he left behind in Ephesus? Chapter 18, verse 19. And they came to Ephesus and he left them there. New city, new opportunities, new possible converts. 
And he says, Priscilla and Aquila, you can do it. See you later, I hope. Verse 21, I will return to Ephesus if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. Now, Priscilla didn't leave her home behind again just to look to fulfill her own dreams and desires. Now she was here because she's eternally minded. She's staying in Ephesus with Aquila because she's ministry driven. She saw gospel opportunities as a privilege. And I would dare say that she would understand the attitude of the Apostle Paul who said in 2 Corinthians 4, therefore having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. She saw the opportunity to serve her Savior as a mercy. She followed her husband Aquila to Ephesus and now clearly Paul wanted them to engage in this brand new ministry there. She could have complained. She could have pouted. She could have given all the reasons why ministry shouldn't be such a high priority. But instead, as we see in her character developing over time, Priscilla was all in because she valued the ministry of the church. That was where, her, that was where she was in. And I think I could guess with fair certainty that after having spent a number of years with the Apostle Paul, seeing him leave would have been a disappointment to Priscilla. But she valued the gospel opportunity and she followed her husband. Susanna Spurgeon, wife of the famed preacher Charles Haddon Spurgeon, she wrote, quote, My chosen husband was no ordinary man. His whole life was absolutely dedicated to God and his service and I must never, never hinder him by trying to put myself first in his heart. She valued the ministry. Ironically, by the way, by having that attitude, Susanna engendered great love from Charles. He wrote of his wife that she is, quote, his better half, his flower of beauty, his heart's treasure. In her company, he finds his earthly heaven. She is the light of his home, the comfort of his soul. Why was his heart so drawn to Susanna? Because she was ministry-driven. Her priorities were right. Now, ladies, you might say, well, that doesn't really apply to me. That's just because Susanna Spurgeon was a pastor's wife. Pastor's families are ministry-driven because he's a pastor. No, 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 no. It's the other way around. It's not that a pastor and his family are ministry-driven because it's part of a job description. It's just the other way around. A pastor and his wife are ministry-driven already. And it just happens that in their case, because of calling and giftedness, it manifests itself in pastoral ministry. But this is why why I love the example of Priscilla. Because guess what she wasn't? She wasn't a pastor's wife. She was a tent maker's wife. And they just lived their lives in the church. They lived their lives for the church. Well, you talk about trying to find a church. How about going to a city that doesn't even have one? That's a tough way to find a church. But she was ministry-driven. Not only was she eternally-minded, ministry-driven, third quality, she was truth-centered. She was truth-centered. What we're going to see is a shining moment in the life of Priscilla and probably the singular reason in the providence of God that they were left behind in Ephesus. Acts chapter 18, verse 24. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, Competent in the scriptures, he had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Apollos was mighty in the scriptures, but he had been taught 
He was teaching everything he knew about Jesus. But he'd only gotten as far as the baptism of John in his understanding. John's baptism was preparation for the Messiah's coming. Apollos accepted this message. He even believed that Jesus was the Lamb of God and the Messiah since John said so. But he didn't understand the significance of the death of Christ. He didn't understand the significance of the resurrection of Christ. He didn't know anything about the coming of the Holy Spirit. He didn't know anything about the birth of the church on the day of Pentecost during this transitional time in redemptive history. So what would we call him? We would call him a redeemed Old Testament saint, but not a Christian in the strictest sense of the word. And so Priscilla and Aquila took him aside. What does this mean? It probably means they took him to their house to speak to him. As usual, Priscilla is listed first, and they took great care to not debate Apollos in public, to not humiliate him or damage his credibility in any way. Why is that? Because almost certainly, the person giving most of the instruction to Apollos was Priscilla. Not as one having authority, but as one privately saying to Apollos, may I help you with the truth of the gospel. I want to give you a little interesting side note here. In verse 25, Apollos is said to have taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. The Greek word translated taught is used 97 times in the New Testament. And it speaks of speaking with unique authority that is beyond just sharing information. There's an insistence and a weight of authority which goes beyond just a friendly discussion. In other words, if I stop and ask somebody for directions and I get directions, this is not that word where I'm being taught. No, it's when you are hearing the word of God proclaimed to you with authority and with an insistence on obedience, that's being taught. Jesus began the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, verse 2, and opening his mouth, he taught them. Same word. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, what was the evaluation of the people who heard him? He was teaching them. Same word as one who had authority. Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, 11, command and teach. Same word, these things. Command and teach, putting together. This was the word used about 50 times of the authoritative teaching of Jesus. It's used 16 times of Acts in Acts of the authoritative teaching of the apostles. And you might be interested to note that this is the word used of authoritative, insistent teaching of the word of God that's used in our main text of 1 Timothy 2.12, I do not permit a woman to teach, to have that authority. But here's the interesting part. Here in Acts 18, when Priscilla is teaching Apollos, verse 26, he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained, same word in Greek, explained to Apollos the way of God more accurately. This is a different word. And in fact, this is a word that every time it's used In the New Testament, it is not an authoritative insistence. It's simply outlining the facts of a matter. Acts chapter 11, same word. Peter explained the events which had happened in Acts 10. Acts 28, 23 records Paul under house arrest in Rome and people coming to visit him. From morning till evening, he expounded, same word, to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus. This wasn't the authoritative teaching of a pastor to the church. This was Paul in chains, just having a conversation with whoever would 
Listen to him. Well, Apollos went on to have a very successful ministry, a pillar in the early church. Look at verse 28. He powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. The success of Apollos was a tribute to the knowledge of the scriptures and the boldness to love the truth of a woman that nobody around him knew was instructing him named Priscilla. What a gift. It's a woman by the name of Etta Linneman. She was born in 1926 in Germany. She was a brilliant student. She studied Protestant theology, church history, biblical philosophy. She leaned hard toward historical criticism. That's the liberal viewpoint of questioning much of the New Testament. In fact, the state church of Germany assigned her to write interpretations of Bible texts for religion teachers in the German public school system. And eventually she became a full professor on this topic in 1972. Dr. Lindemann wrote numerous famous and widely used publications, including a famous book on the parables of Jesus, all from the the, the terrible historical critical viewpoint. She became a leading voice for liberal theology and questioning the divine authorship of Scripture. But on November 5th, 1977, at the age of 51, she gave her life to Christ. And she repented of what she called her, quote, perverse theological teaching well she began writing solid brilliant scholarly works still used today on the accuracy and the god-breathed nature of the bible i was required in seminary to read etta lineman in 1983 she went as a missionary to indonesia she believed in the inerrancy of scripture the authority of scripture and therefore she knew she could never be a pastor But what she did do is quietly go to the Theological University of the Indonesian Mission and she trained local pastors in theology so that they could shepherd their congregations. And these pastors would go and teach sound doctrine to their people, never knowing that there was a Priscilla behind the scenes. Ladies, cultivate a love for the truth of Scripture. We talked a lot about this last week, so I won't belabor the point. But don't limit yourself to a devotional view of the Bible where the Bible only contains nuggets of truth and emotional sound bites that you're trying to grab a hold of. The more deeply you love the truth and learn of our Savior through the Scriptures, the more your life will take on Christ-likeness and the more effective you'll be in any and every area of your ministry. We just came out with a book, a godly profile, a profile of a godly wife, a look at Proverbs 31 You know what the last thing I did before we published that book? The last thing I did was to have several women in our church give feedback. And some of it was very pointed and very, very helpful. They would never want you to know who they are, but that book is much better because of them. I'm thankful for that. Now, you may be thinking, well, I'm never going to train a pastor. I'll bet you might. Many of you are raising boys. And I hate to tell you this, but I've been praying for your boys that many of them go into the gospel ministry. And God's going to hear those prayers. And some of your boys are going to stand in the pulpit like this one in 20, 30, and 40 years. Because we need men in the church. So could I say this? You are training pastors. Train them to love the scriptures by demonstrating it, teaching them in your home, making sure they're in church every single week. You know why Timothy was such a great pastor? It's because he got a head start. 
How did he get a head start? Because he had a grandmother named Lois and a mother named Eunice who taught him from the time he was a little boy. Scholars think that Timothy was preaching the word in multiple churches in his area by the time he was 18 because of his knowledge of the word. Priscilla was eternally minded. She was ministry driven. She was truth centered. There's a fourth quality. She was people oriented. She was people oriented. Turn with me over to 1 Corinthians 16. 1 Corinthians 16, the Apostle Paul is now back in Ephesus where he left Priscilla and Aquila some three years earlier. He was doing a three-year ministry tour and now he's in Ephesus. From Ephesus in A.D. 56, he wrote 1 Corinthians back to the church in Corinth where he had first met Priscilla and Aquila and he sends a greeting back to Corinth that tells us the value Priscilla placed on the people of Christ's church. 1 Corinthians uh, 16, right near the end, verse 19. Look who is included in the greeting. The churches of Asia send you greetings, Aquila and Prisca, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. Oh, now Priscilla wasn't just hosting Paul, maybe in a guest bedroom or something, like they did in Corinth. She's not just having people over on occasion, as they did with Apollos. A local church was using their home as their place of worship and preaching and teaching. Look, we're looking for a facility. Maybe one of you has a big house we can use every week. You're all not making eye contact at all right now. But that's what she did. What a testimony to the believers in Corinth who undoubtedly missed Priscilla and Aquila. They were being faithful to the ministry and literally loving an entire local church. Ladies, what does it take to have people in your home? It takes planning. It takes cleaning. It takes having food prepared. It costs money. It takes time. It means you can't just be in your pajamas when people come over. How about having an entire church to your home multiple times a week? Because during the days of the early church, they did not restrict themselves to meeting only on Sundays. Why would anyone do this? From a human standpoint, that's insanity. But she does it because she loved the saints. And Priscilla made sure her home was ready each and every time they were there. She loved them in this incredibly practical way. By the way, how does Paul know the church in their house so well? Probably because he's staying with them also. How long this time? Three years. But Priscilla went far beyond just being a wonderful hostess. She demonstrated her love for the saints by also loving their leaders. Turn back with me to Romans. Romans 16. Romans 16, sometime before 57 or 58 AD, right in there, Priscilla and Aquila returned to Rome after the death of Emperor Claudius in 54. Now they're separated from Paul once again. And how delighted they must have been to have a knock at their door and hear, as they open the door, a woman named Phoebe say, I bring you greetings from Paul. And Phoebe had a special treat. She was carrying a letter that Paul sent with her, the letter we know as Romans. And much to their certainly emotional surprise to hear Phoebe read the letter and come to the end, Romans 16, verse 3. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risk their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. 
Paul called them fellow workers in the gospel. This is rare praise. This was a term, so it's a word in Greek that means together workers, which Paul used very sparingly. He used this for men like Titus and Timothy and Epaphroditus. All those that Paul used this term for either proclaimed the gospel with Paul or maintained their own house churches, served in prison alongside him, or led an entire community of believers in his absence. They were a big deal. And he says, they risked their lives for my, risked their necks for my life. We use that uh, metaphorically. He risked his neck. He's using that literally because to speak of risking your neck means you're risking being beheaded for the sake of the gospel. What did they do? Well, it could have been during the riots in Ephesus of Acts 19. Maybe they used their influence to help Paul, but the point is, not only did they love the people of God, but they valued the leadership to the point of risking their lives in some way for Paul. What an amazing, amazing love for your leaders. Somebody who would risk their lives. Priscilla was people-oriented. Ladies, how can you be people-oriented? I, I find it ironic, having been in the ministry for a quarter of a century now, I find it ironic that in the church of Jesus Christ, women who are supposedly the most relational creatures are the ones generally I have to deal with who are having conflicts. We can see this in Philippians 4 as well with the two women there. So how can you be people-oriented? There are things you know. Don't speak words that tear down the church. Don't criticize. Don't gossip. Don't listen to words that tear down. That just weakens and taints the church. It's, it's, it's like a, a ball team that is fighting with one another. They can't win the game. Set an example in your home of valuing God's people. Speak well of them. Cherish them. Invest in them. Gossip doesn't somehow stop being gossip because it's with your family. Thank the Lord regularly for our local church. I know we have our flaws and foibles and failures. Anytime I get to step into the Grace Connect class, I try to remember to apologize in advance for all the ways that I'm going to disappoint them. But then I say, I forgive you for all the ways you're going to disappoint me. So it's even both ways. Christ values our church. And can I tell you something? I have noticed that when the women of the church value the local body, it shows up in everything from your smiles to the treatment of our guests to your enthusiasm to serve. It just comes out in everything. Priscilla was eternally minded. She was ministry driven. She was truth oriented. She was people, truth centered rather. She was people oriented. We'll do one more. She was heavenly focused. She was heavenly focused. Turn to 2 Timothy chapter 4 and we'll finish here. 2 Timothy 4, what do I mean that Priscilla was heavenly focused? She lived her whole life in service to Christ as a faithful part of the local church. She endeared herself to Paul by her faithfulness, her devotion, her dependability, her steadiness. She wasn't a drama queen. She wasn't self-focused. She wasn't constantly looking for self-gratification. She wasn't constantly complaining. She was just faithful for so many years. And we fast forward now to about A.D. 67. Priscilla and Aquila are back in Ephesus. Yet again, they've moved for the sake of the gospel only. The Apostle Paul is in Rome. He is in prison now for the second time. And this time, 
he won't make it out alive. He will be executed soon. He's telling Timothy some final instructions, the most important of which is preach the word in 2 Timothy 4, verse 2. Paul gives some final instructions to Timothy and he closes with his resolution that the Lord will take him safely home to heaven. Look with me at verse 18. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. P.S. Verse 19. Greet Prisca and Aquila. Paul takes one final opportunity to greet those closest to him and this time he doesn't call her Priscilla. The last time he will greet her in this life before heaven, he uses her formal name and he puts her first. Greet Prisca and Aquila. They'd known Paul for 16 years now. They had loved and served the church together in steady faithfulness and maturity that they are on his heart even as he faces his own death. What did Priscilla do as a godly support to the church of Jesus Christ? What shows her to be heavenly focused? Here's her resume. She hosted churches in her home in Corinth, Ephesus, and Rome. She went on numerous missionary journeys, some lasting years. She supported not only herself financially along with her husband, she supported the ministry financially. She risked her life to keep the preaching of the word going. She followed her husband wherever the Lord led. She instructed Apollos, who would go on to be one of the great preachers of the early church. And you never get the sense, you never get the sense that Priscilla was spending her life in the never-ending pursuit of making her own dreams come true. She was heavenward in her gaze. What does this look like for you, ladies? Can I tell you this? If you will live your life like Priscilla, you will go to your reward a happy woman indeed. How do you do that? Let me give you some thoughts. Commit to filling needs, not fulfilling desires. Commit to filling needs, not fulfilling desires. Your desires in this life will never be utterly fulfilled. They just won't. Commit to finding your place for the duration of your life. Commit to finding your place for the duration of your life. Do you know it's something the church of Jesus Christ in America has lost? It is the person who serves in the same capacity for 20, 30, 40, and 50 years. Now, somebody serves for eight months and says, I think I need a break. Commit to loving your husband biblically for real. Commit to loving your husband biblically for real. You know why that's so important? Because there are young ladies watching you. And they see you and they'll take that example. Being a godly wife is as much caught as it is taught. Commit to loving the church with your whole heart. Commit to loving the church with your whole heart. I know the church will disappoint you. The church disappoints me. We understand that. But if you put the lens of love on, then now you're loving Christ with your whole heart. How about this one? Commit to loving other women. Commit to loving other women. I know that's difficult sometimes. I know that sometimes you step on a landmine of the drama of somebody else's life. That's okay. Love some other women. Commit to exuding the joy of the Lord. Commit to exuding the joy of the Lord. Don't be the woman that sucks the happiness out of the room by the first four words that you say. How are you doing today? Well, I'd be better if I was dead. 
Okay, well, how am I doing? Now I'd be better if I was dead. Thank you for saying that. (laughs) Commit to exuding the joy of the Lord. Don't we have much to be joyful about? How about this one? Commit to setting an example of obedience to Christ. Commit to setting an example of obedience to Christ. All it takes is one woman who is obeying Christ to tell a younger woman, oh, the most important thing in the world is to obey Christ in my home and in my church. That's all it takes. Commit to guarding your tongue and using words of grace. Commit to guarding your tongue and using words of grace. Four times in the book of Proverbs, a husband is told that if his wife can't control his tongue, the only thing he can do is go find a corner of the house somewhere to curl up in. Don't be that woman. Commit to the lowliest servant opportunities and do so with the expectation of great reward. Commit to the lowliest Servant opportunities. And kind of the culmination of all of that, commit to filling a resume full of humble accomplishments for Christ so that you might receive your reward. You will have a resume to present to the Lord. Priscilla was buried on the Aventine Hill, one of the major hills in the city of Rome. It's where she first came to faith in Christ. The name Priscilla means longevity, which I think is appropriate as she remains the most famous woman in the early church. And Priscilla today even stands as a model of what it means to be a woman in the church who does not teach men, who does not exercise authority, yet no one would ever question her impact and influence for the sake of the gospel Did you see what the Apostle Paul said at the end of Romans? He said that all the churches of the Gentiles are thankful for her. Why? Because she helped save him. She supported his ministry. She was a tent maker's wife who knew the word and served the church with all of her might. And oh, to be like the tent maker's wife, to yearn for the lost and love the church, to serve Christ's people all of my life, to share the gospel with all who search. A marriage that honors my God above. A delight in the word which renews my mind. A home that is open to pour out great love with a spirit that is humble and gentle and kind. Oh, to be like the tent maker's wife, to exert all the effort that God may afford. A giver of grace, not envy or strife. Then... Joyful and content will I be in the Lord. Amen? Let's pray. Our Father, teach us to obey. And in our obedience to Christ, what joy, what contentment, what delight we will find. I am inspired by Priscilla. She's one on the list of people I eagerly would love to meet in heaven and look forward to that. And Lord, for every woman here, she stands as an example for us. But more importantly, she stands as an example of what it means to follow you, to follow Christ. I pray, Lord, that as the Lord Jesus Christ walks to and fro among our church, that we would receive a commendation that we have godly men and we have godly women. Help us to strive for that ideal, to love Christ with our obedience, to be satisfied 
and overjoyed with the created order as you have ordained it. And that will lead to all honor, all glory, all praise going to the only one to whom it is due, our Savior, the head of the church, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen.